Welcome to the podcast series, Who's Who in Emergency Medicine. This will be a monthly podcast where we get to know some of the leading figures in academic emergency medicine. So join us in this session, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Emily Prince-Ralby. I'm a second-year medical student at the University of Miami in Miller School of Medicine. I'm here with Dr. Megan Ray. Hi, Megan. Hi, nice to be here. So Dr. Megan Ray, she's an emergency medicine physician and researcher, focusing on the intersection between digital health and injury prevention. She's the director and founder of the Brown Emergency Digital Health Intervention Program. Dr. Rennie is an editor for the Journal of Emergency Medicine and a fellow of ASAP and elected member of SEM Board of Directors. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we have a couple questions for you. So you're doing great work in the public health field, specifically in injury prevention and mental health intervention for vulnerable populations. But even before medical school, you did serve in the Peace Corps, and you wanted to know that did this influenced you to get involved in the public health sector, and did this influence your interest in emergency medicine? It's a great question. So I did Peace Corps largely to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. In undergrad, I had toyed with the idea of being pre-med. wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to actually go to med school or do public health or journalism. And so did the Peace Corps to help figure that out. It became very clear to me as a Peace Corps volunteer that I both wanted to be able to address the underlying structural or systemic issues that make people sick. And I wanted to be able to treat people. When I was in Peace Corps in West Africa, it was at the early height of the HIV epidemic. And it was at a point when there was no availability of antiretrovirals. Mm -hmm. So I saw villager after villager and friend after friend get sick and die from HIV AIDS with no treatment available. So that was kind of the deciding point for me where I said, well, clearly we need to do education and public health work and talk about the reasons why people are getting infected. But I also want to be able to give people meds. So I actually came back to the States, applied to med school, planning to do ID. Because at that point in the late 90s, early 2000s, to me, that was the way to influence public health because like HIV epidemic was huge. So Still is. Going back to, to yes, absolutely. So exactly, I came back, applied to med school, planning to go back to West Africa, and then got here and did a doctoring rotation, my first semester of my first year of med school, with a guy who is actually still attending at Columbia, Josh Stillman, if he's listening to this podcast, who's an emergency physician. At that point, emergency medicine didn't have a residency at Columbia, but he took me under his wing, showed me the ED, and I realized that this was the place where you saw everyone, that this was the place where you could have a public health impact. This is where people who had nowhere else to go came. And this was before we were doing universal HIV tests in the emergency departments. So to me, it was also, this is the place to identify the most at-risk people who are at risk of either contracting HIV AIDS or not realizing that they have it. And so then that switched me into EM. And then a long and windy road, lots of years of continuing to do global health, got married, had kids, like, and decided that maybe global health was not going to be the thing that was going to work for me. And also there's so much public health need here in the United States. And I felt very strongly that for me, having been a Peace Corps volunteer who lived For two and a half years in a single community, I had seen the value of having a consistent long-term commitment to a single community. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel personally that I could go and do global health work just going for a couple weeks, a few times a year. Right? There are people who do that successfully, but that wasn't my thing. And again, identifying the huge public health needs here in the United States and the opportunities that we have in the emergency department to identify at-risk patients across the spectrum and then to do something about it. That was the combination of kind of the Josh Stillman plus my own life situation was what made me decide to go into emergency medicine and then ultimately to focus on injury prevention, which is so intimately tied to all of these social determinants of health. And how did you get into the injury prevention? 
it was a little bit of happenstance, right? So this is one of those things where I tell mentees that in retrospect, I can tell a really good coherent story about how I got to where I am. At the moment, you just kind of fell into it. Exactly. (laughs) At the moment, it was this thing of like, well, I know I love public health. I know I want to do stuff in the emergency department. And there was this great guy in my department named Mike Mello who was willing to take me under his wing and help me do a couple of research studies. There was availability of data, availability of mentorship. He had a fellowship at my institution that I didn't really want to move. I saw that there was this big overlap between injury prevention and everything I was interested in. And so that was kind of how I ended up doing it. And I'm passionate about it, but I could have very easily done a slightly different fellowship. I guess it was the availability of the mentee-mentor relationships that you have there. Exactly. It's funny how that kind of shows your trajectory in life and here we are today. Right. And I think it's an important thing, you know, knowing that we're doing this podcast partly for residents and med students. You know, some people come in saying this is the one thing I have ever wanted to do, right? And have this utter clarity from moment one. And I think that's wonderful. I also think it's okay to not know exactly. I think that once you commit to something, you have to commit and follow through. It doesn't good to be flighty, but it's okay. If you can't lay out your next 20 years right now, that's totally okay. Because if you had asked me 15 years ago what I was going to be doing, what I'm doing now is not necessarily identical. In fact, it's not at all identical to what I thought I was going to be doing. So that's great because it does seem like after medical school, after residency, you came back around and then you decided to then pursue your MPH, right? Correct. So how, how did you come back around to going for the MPH? Yeah. So I had always known that I wanted an MPH. I didn't want to spend the money in med school, right? I think many of us with student loans, there's a limit to how much you want to take on. And one of the nice things about my fellowship is that it did pay for the advanced degree. Mm -hmm. And so, again, from that mentorship perspective, I think for folks that are looking at fellowships, Mm -hmm. they're wonderful. I mean, it's an amazing chance to get to immerse yourself in a topic for a couple of years with good mentorship. I think it's also important to find a fellowship that does offer an advanced degree, Mm -hmm. whether it's a degree in master's in education or master's in public health, depending on what your interests are. I know you gave some great advice earlier, but do you have any final advice for medical students, residents, or young faculty looking to get involved in public health? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is to get involved. I mean, that's so cheesy, but I mean, so I would say to show up, right? So within SAEM, we have the social emergency medicine section, which is incredibly powerful and has great leaders. And so show up at the meetings, be on the listserv, volunteer for things. When I think about how I got involved in SAEM, one of my early leadership roles was chairing the then public health interest group that's now Social EM. And it gave me an opportunity to bring in speakers and get to know people from the CDC and NIH. Um, Right, well, exactly. And it wasn't, you know, it was done with the goal of doing good. But I think that that's the biggest thing. I also think that for public health, there's certainly plenty of needs, I'm sure, in everyone's community. Mm -hmm. So identifying what needs matter to you and then finding a group that needs help. And then ideally having a faculty mentor. And it may not be someone at your own institution. So one of my consistently closest mentors and supports and one of the biggest influences on my career is actually a woman who's in emergency medicine at University of Michigan. So we've never been at the same institution. But I talk to her as much as I talk to any of my local mentors. Um, Through SAM, actually, it was. Uh, I'm not trying to be like a plug, but it was at a consensus conference. I went up to her. I had seen her name on a couple of abstracts and papers, and I went up and introduced myself and said, "Could I have like a 15 minute phone call with you? I'd love your advice, you know." And then had my like list of definitive questions, and we just hit it off. And then it has turned, you know, early on it was one type of relationship, and it's turned into a different one 
we're like 10, 12 years later. So, yeah. Do you guys still work together now? Yeah, we do. Great. I were co-investigators on a couple of NIH grants together. All right, next question. So you've been specifically involved in research and advocacy for farm injury prevention. What goals do you have in your research through your foundation? And what advice would you give to legislators in combating the major cause of Awesome question. So a little bit of background for folks listening who may not know. So firearm injury is one of the only types of injury in this country that has had a constant death rate for the past 50 years. We have effectively used the public health approach to decrease injuries and deaths from every other type of injury. And in the few cases where rates of injury and death have gone up, the example being opioids, Mm We have quickly noticed that and then dedicated resources towards addressing them, right? NIH spent $500 million on opioids last year. Guns don't have that money being put towards finding a solution. And that's largely because of politics. But it's a shame because doing research is not a political action. Doing research is about trying to find the best evidence. It's not us versus them. And that was the motivation behind this foundation, Affirm. It is a 501c3, nonpartisan, non-advocacy-based group whose goal is to take private sector resources, people who care about this issue, and match them with the best and brightest researchers across the country. We know that there are a lot of people who are well-trained in the science injury prevention and the science of harm reduction. And we want to get those brains thinking about and finding really rigorous solutions to this epidemic. And that involves gun owners too. Again, this is, it's not like gun control versus gun safety. Like this is a, right, it's education for everyone and recognizing that we really need evidence behind it, that doing what makes us feel good or what seems right is sometimes not the right solution. We have example after example of that in the history of public health, where we've done things that we thought would make things better and they've actually made things worse. And so that's the motivation behind Affirm. I also, in addition to being the chief research officer for Affirm, I also do do research myself and then have served as the co-chair of my governor's work group on gun safety. And so in that role, have had some interaction with legislators, again, not in an advocacy basis, but rather in trying to portray what the current state of the literature is. And so to me, the biggest advice that I have is that we need to fund more research. There are a few policies that have good evidence behind them. So safe storage laws have been shown to decrease kids hurting themselves or others. You know, with suicide being two-thirds of gun deaths, that's a huge thing. And strengthened background check laws also have some evidence behind them in terms of decreasing various types of death, domestic violence, suicide, homicide. But all these other things that we're debating, there's just not a lot of evidence out there yet. Does that mean that legislators shouldn't act? That's not my area. I'm going to stay in my lane here and and let legislators decide what they feel that they want to do. But there's, to me, something really universal that I feel like both my Republican friends and my Democrat friends can get behind is funding firearm injury research. I don't have a lot of hope that Congress is going to do it in any substantial way anytime soon. I would love to... As individuals, we can make that choice. But as individuals, we can make a difference, right? That's why we did affirm. One final question on a different note. Brown seems to be a unique place in the faculty. They're very diverse and average for gender and both ethnicity and gender. How do you feel this benefits your department? So I'll say ethnicity, gender, and also sexual minority status. Yes, uh, so, lifespan is Well, so lifespan is our health system. And then Brown, we're, you know, like many... <laughs> academic emergency departments across the country. We have our health system, we have our med school. So how did that happen? It happened honestly through a really intentional effort on the part of our hiring committee, particularly under the leadership of our past chair, Brian Zink, who's now at University of Michigan. 
he made this an important part of his tenure as chair, was trying to have equal representation of women and doing the best we could around underrepresented minorities, although we also recognize that we have a long way to go. I mean, as does all of emergency medicine, right? But we're trying hard to put all of the supports in place. So the other part is you don't just want diversity, you also want inclusion, right? So having a variety of people who come and get hired is no good if they don't feel supported and like they have equal voices and equal pay and equal influence. And so we're working equally hard at making sure that this is an inclusive environment where everyone's voice is heard. I'm very lucky to get to work with some incredible powerhouse people. The folks in my department are just amazing. I have Alison McGregor, who's a national leader on sex and gender. I have Tracy Madsen, who publishes on gender and ethnicity and their effect on stroke outcomes. We have a woman, Nadine Himmelfarb, who's all about wellness and who is leading a women's leadership group. Esther Chu was my office mate for eight years, and so her kind of being there was a great influence. I mean, there's dozens of amazing people. We have a new woman, Tanisha Wilson, who just finished fellowship, actually injury prevention fellowship with us, and has gotten grants around diversity and underrepresented minorities. So part of it is, and again, I credit Brian for this to a large extent is that he created the environment where we then had this critical mass of people who cared and who spoke out and who are making things better, recognizing that none of us are where we want to be yet. So I love that you see us as diverse, but that also makes me somewhat sad because we are not where we want to be. We've reached a bar, but it's not the final goal. Yeah, but it makes a big difference. I think it makes a difference for the guys. And whether you're minority or majority, having a more diverse environment makes stuff better for everybody. Yes, definitely helps everyone. All right, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Annie, for coming and speaking with me. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I just really want to give you kudos, especially as a med student, to how brave you are to come and do these podcasts. And I really thank you on behalf of SAM and on behalf of the med students and residents who will hopefully enjoy these. And I want to say that certainly if anyone ever wants to reach out to me, either in my position on the SAM board or kind of for other stuff, to feel free, that this is the mission of all of us in academics is to grow the field. And so thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Jesse. I appreciate it.